Welcome to the Evolution 2.0 podcast, where we explore the intersection of art, technology, business, biology, and spirituality. Here, you'll discover new trends in evolution that are changing the way we think about everything. This is your host, Perry Marshall, author of Evolution 2.0, 80-20 Sales and Marketing, and guides to Ethernet, Google, and Facebook. I'm founder of the Evolution 2.0 Prize, a quest for the missing link between Earth science, the information age, and life itself. Let's join the conversation now. Hi, this is Perry Marshall, and I'm here with Anthony O'Hare, who is the author of a book called Transcendence, Creation, and Incarnation from Philosophy to Religion. And uh, I met Anthony as a result of being friends with some people in the UK, uh, Alan Montefiore and his wife, who run the London Society for the Study of Religion. And uh, they are rather tight with a bunch of people from Oxford. And Anthony is a professor of philosophy at the University of Buckingham in the UK. And from 94 until 2019, he directed the Royal Institute of Philosophy, and he was editor of the journal Philosophy, and he has an Order of the British Empire medal from Great Britain for his services uh, in helping them with education. And, you know, since us Americans, we don't have these, you know, there's no Order (laughs) of the American Empire medal, right? So... (laughs) So we're all very impressed with stuff like that. And you can come over here and walk on imported air next time you visit the United States because <laughs> of all this, well, uh, these distinctions that you have. But um, I've had numerous conversations with Anthony. And um, the last time I saw him, he gave me this book and I started reading it. I'm like, my good, this is actually a pretty good book. So it might be fun to talk about that on the podcast. So, Anthony, welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Perry. Thanks very much for welcoming me. And I look forward to coming and walking on air in your country. <laughs> <laughs> so this book is uh, it is a book that it, it explores the fact that um, if you're going to understand the world in any meaningful way, you can't just do it with description. You can't just do it with, you know, weighing things and measuring things and, you know, energy consumption and things like that. There are much more subtle things that are going on in the world. And I guess my first question is, before we get into the actual content, I think there were some questions gnawing away at you about this sort of thing. And I think there's a story behind this book for you personally. Can you help us understand what motivated you to try to tackle a subject like this? And and in fact, probably some of your philosophy brethren wouldn't even consider this to be cool. How did this come about? Well, I am in fact an admirer of science and I did do quite a lot of work in the philosophy of science, but It struck me pretty early on that when we talk about natural science and its descriptions and explanations, these are all couched in terms that don't express any value or meaning. It doesn't mean to say that they're not true, 
but it abstracts from a very important aspects of our lives, the moral aspect, the aesthetic, um, the fact that when we deal with each other, we regard each other as free and responsible and we praise people and blame people. Mm -hmm. All these things on the level of meaning, I think, take us beyond scientific descriptions and explanations that leave us with an objective view, if you like, but one that leaves out the things that are really humanly important. And so in the book, the first half of the book, I try to discuss some of the things that I think are humanly important. And I see all them as pointing in the direction of something beyond the empirical, the factual, the scientific. So that's really my route into the book. Well, I think there's, um, there's an awful lot of the scientific profession that would prefer or even insist that, you know, this profession of science, which mm. is the source of a certain kind of truth, needs to be washed clean of any notion of value or purpose or judgment because it is, after all, a perfectly objective pursuit that we are yes. going to weigh everything, we are going to measure everything. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, I would say in your very gentlemanly, polite British way, in this book, you're saying that's rubbish. Well, I don't think it's rubbish. I think in a way, I would agree with that description of science. And I, and I think that the strength of science is that it gives us pictures which I think are abstractions, actually, that's another point. But it gives us pictures of the world that are free from value and meaning in a broad sense. But of course, as human beings, we have to live in the world of value and meaning. Yeah. And indeed, science itself emerges from that world. It is because I am a conscious, I hope a rational human being, you know, with values of truth and objectivity even, that I'm able to participate in science. And of course, all the scientists who do science are first of all, human beings. And in a way, when they do science, they occlude from themselves those meaningful aspects of their lives. So if science were to tell me that those things are illusions or not true, that would seem to me to cut off the branch on which science itself is sitting because science itself is only validated in terms of the human beings who approach it with their meaning and value and logic and sense of truth and so on, which are not themselves part of science. I think that's very useful and interesting because like what you, I like what you said about they're cutting the very branch off that they're mm they're sitting on, right? So, so the fact that science can give me a way by which I would weigh a steel ingot and that I would have a, a measurement that says that it weighs 10 kilograms, it doesn't excuse me from the fact that a very purposeful and intentional process led to creating that method and deciding what a kilogram is and why, you know, why we, 
you know, why we do it one way instead of another, and that all of those things are very intertwined with subjective human values. Well, absolutely. And by subjective, yes. I mean, I would accept that they're subjective in the sense that they're internal to us, but I don't think that means that they're not true. And again, so if science tells me these things are illusions, it is precisely because I have these illusions, in inverted commas, of consciousness, self-consciousness, being able to find meaning in things and so on, that science is possible. And again, if they tell me, if science tells me that I'm not free, that many scientists would try to tell me, I would say that it is only as a free human being, subject to various values that, that emerge from our freedom, that we are all able to do and consider and evaluate science itself. So again, science depends on human freedom, and it can't therefore undermine human freedom. When you use the word myth, yes, can you articulate exactly what that word does and doesn't mean? Because that people use that word a lot of different ways and sometimes pejorative and you use it in a very positive um more of an uplifting sense uh, what, what does the word myth mean to you well myth can obviously cover a huge range of things and some myths are i, I would say not very profound and um, not very sensible i think that you know i, I mentioned a minute or two ago about human beings, us, you, me, everybody, we try to find meaning in our lives. And one of the ways in which we articulate meaning is through stories, narratives, myths. And I think that some of these myths are very, even though they are in a sense, maybe not true on a literal level, they give us deep insights into human values, into the meanings we give to things, into our sense that we owe things to our ancestors and to our descendants, that we are creatures who recognize, you know, human beings, we are creatures who recognize certain values, we expect certain manners of behavior. These things are all often best articulated in myths, which take us beyond the rather bleached out descriptions and explanations that we get in science. Because in science, it just tells us that, if you like, there's one damn thing after another. It doesn't tell us that the birth of a human being, let's say, or, or the death of a human being, that these are things of importance. They're not just one damn thing after another. These are things that really matter. And I think that, that it's in myths often that we get the best understanding of these things, myths and stories. So I'm talking about stories that tell us, um, I would say often profound truths about the meanings we find in our lives. So that's one aspect of it. But I think also, and this we can obviously, this would be another element of it. Often these myths tell us that we are not alone in the universe, that we are creatures who are in one way or another derived from something transcendent, something divine, and that the world itself is created, it depends on something outside itself. 
And I find the big religious myths, which all humanity, and probably until now, has worked and lived under, these are pointing in that direction of the world and ourselves being dependent and indeed obligated by something outside this world. And that, I think, is something that comes over very strongly in most of the myths that I would be interested in. So give me an example of a myth that you feel is extremely useful for communicating these kind of values. Well, I mean, obviously, um, I say obviously, I would say that the Christian myth is the one in which I feel most at home because it tells us that we are divinely created, that the world is divinely created, that human beings are creatures who are created free, but that they have fallen and that there is a possibility of redemption. And indeed, of course, according to Christianity, the actuality of redemption. Now, just put like that, that's a very stark description of Christianity, and it's very, very incomplete. But, but I find very similar things in the Greek myths that we find in people like Plato and Pythagoras. And I've no doubt that similar ideas c can be extricated from the myths in the Sanskrit Vedas and other, um, other mythologies, um, which I don't know so much about. So I, I would say that the, the two sorts of myths that I know most about, that's the Christian and maybe the ancient Greek myths, they seem to me to point to particular things of importance about our lives. And I would say particularly the sense that in one way, we are fallen creatures who need redemption in a way, but redemption is possible. And, and I would emphasize the fact that in both the Greek and Christian myths, it, it says that we are fallen, we do have visions of perfection, and we do have a sense of perfection, and of course we do many good things, but there is also a sense that we need to rise above the, if you like, the lower aspects of our nature. Obviously there's a lot more to Christianity than that, but that would be a starting point. Well, so when I, when I read your book, you take Christianity more seriously than like a story of, you know, Goldilocks and the three bears. Like yeah. uh, th those would be two very different levels of myth. You're talking about a particular way of using the word myth because you um, in, in your book, you treat Christianity as expressing certain truths that even parts of the story are true. You treat yeah. Jesus as a historical figure. So yeah. put a little finer point on how you're using myth here. Well, obviously, it seems to me that, well, I think it's obviously true that the Christian myth is based on, I think, incontrovertibly based on historical facts, historical facts about a human being who was a charismatic preacher who lived in Judea, you know, in what, what we would now call the first century, of course, but it's his century, in the time of Augustus, and who was put to death 
probably by the Romans, by Pontius Pilate. I mean, I take it, that, and, and then after that, his followers started a cult, or you might call it a religion. These, I think, are historical facts. I mean, some people might disagree with them, but I think the weight of evidence is that these are true facts. But of course, so far, I've said nothing about the meaning of this story or or of these facts. And in Christianity, this is where the mythical aspect of it comes in. And by mythical, I don't mean it isn't true, but it takes us beyond these bare facts. And in the end, after several centuries of discussion and, and exploration and drawing out what was in this story to start with, Christians see Christ as the second person of the Blessed Trinity incarnated, so God made man and God rising and redeeming, in fact, the whole world. That's the mythical part of Christianity. And by calling it mythical, I'm not meaning to say that it's not true, but I'm saying these are not things that are obvious on the bare historical account. It is the part of the story that is is infused with a meaning that directs your own life. It's not merely a recitation of a sequence of events or one damn thing after another, as you... Yeah, yeah, that's right. And obviously, in the way I've just spoken, I'm talking in a very broad brush way, but I would want to fill a lot of this out by saying that this mythical side of Christianity, I think it it, it is believable, not just as a fantasy, but because what it tells me does seem to reflect aspects of not only my experience, but of human experience and and gives gives a deep insight into those aspects of human experience. So, and indeed, in, in, in the book you spoke about, I spend some time trying to say what those aspects of human experience might be that take us in a way, in a direction that would make us sympathetic to the claims of Christianity. But I should just put in a caveat here. I do in fact say in the book that I don't want to claim that Christianity is the only myth that has truth in it, or indeed that it has necessarily got the whole truth. Because I think that when we come to talk about transcendence, about uh, God or Brahma, whatever you want to call this being beyond the universe, I think all our descriptions are going to be inadequate. And we have to rely on analogy, metaphor, myth. And I think that many myths may give us insights into this and that because even though I may have been brought up in one which I cherish this doesn't mean to say that there aren't truths in other myths so I'd also stress that side of it. So there's something that you said that was very interesting Uh, it was something like we all feel alone in the universe, but to say that we've been left alone is completely different than saying that there was no God there in the first place. 
if God is there, but we are out mm. of touch with God, that's mm. a that's a completely different thing than saying God was there was never any God in the first place. Well, yes, I, I yeah, I mean, obviously there are some conceptions of God that see God as just a watchmaker who then withdraws completely from the world. And that, that was a view that, that was quite prominent in 18th century thinking. But that doesn't seem to me to be satisfactory or true to experience, because I would then want to say that, that in aspects of my experience, or our experience, I mean, I'm not just speaking purely subjectively, in aspects of human, sorry, there are aspects of human experience that suggest that we can reach out to this divinity and that it reaches out to us. And I would particularly stress here our moral sense, the sense that we feel obligations that are incumbent upon us that we don't choose. I don't think we choose our um, moral standards. I mean, th there might be some elements of difference and choice within it, but certain basic things like telling the truth regarding human life in one sense, at least partly as sacred, having obligations, as I've already said, to my parents and my children, truth-telling, things like this. I think that we feel these things as not chosen by us, but imposed on us perhaps from outside. So I see morality as taking us to a world or to a reality beyond this world. It isn't just created by us. And I also find this strongly in experiences of, of beauty and, yes, a, a, a sense, again, that in, in our experience of beauty, we are almost overhearing perhaps intimations of something beyond the mere facts of the world, something that takes us to a transcendent realm. So I would not regard a view of God that makes God completely detached from the world and has no contact with the world. I would not, not regard that as satisfactory from the point of view of, of morality and aesthetics. And also, I think, um, from our sense of wanting to find out about things, our sense of truth, and that we want to uncover the ultimate secrets of the physical universe. These seem to me to be motivations which point in a direction beyond mere survival and reproduction, which is what um, the most fashionable view in science tells us, that we're only here to survive and reproduce. I think we're also here to find out about things that take us way beyond survival and reproduction. And we're here to act in a moral way and also to experience beauty. All of these things, I think, go way beyond survival and reproduction and point in the direction of transcendence, which we are, in some sense, in touch with. There was a part of your book that I thought was brilliant. You quoted somebody who said, if I had to decide whether nature or the human body was more 
designed more for practical purposes or more for beauty, I would have to think about it really hard to decide between the two. And I thought that was that was a beautiful observation because if we're just put here to survive and reproduce, hmm. you know, why why is even something like a human foot a really beautiful thing to look at? Right. Yes. As as we know from pictures and sculptures and hmm. and everything else, right? There's like there's this question of why is there so much beauty in the world, even though none of us would be able to precisely define what it is? Yes. Well, I, I, I think that, of course, I'm not denying that, far from it, I'm not, I wouldn't deny that we are adapted in various ways. I mean, indeed, the whole of nature is a process of adaptation and also extinction, people sometimes forget. So I wouldn't want to say that, for example, that the hand didn't evolve for certain functions or in the light of its ability to perform certain functions, which I'm now waving my hand about. But I think on top of that, as you've just said, um, there are aspects of this that go beyond the merely functional to the aesthetic, to beauty. And I think an interesting point here is, I don't know whether I mentioned it in the book, that similar patterns of beauty are found in many aspects of the organic realm. And so then one begins to wonder why the organic realm is adaptive, yes, but why does it have these patterns in it that an artist like Leonardo very very strong in in this finds in in storms in leaves in human beings in other animals the same beautiful patterns being reproduced and this i think of course it's it's, it's not it's not a proof of anything but i think it's something that is worth attending to and may well take us in the kind of direction that we're talking about so in, in your book, one of the major figures is Simone Weil. Yes. And I have to admit, I was barely familiar with her before. She had a lot of interesting things to say. Could you explain who is this person? First of all, who, who is Simone Weil? Well, Why should people care about the, this yeah, woman? I think she's a genius, but she's very difficult. And I don't agree with everything that she says, as I explain in the book. But she, she was French and she was a secular, she was Jewish, but a secular Jew. So she never practiced as a Jew, but she had, she was a very brilliant student in Paris in the thirties and was in the same class, I think, as Simone de Beauvoir and Sartre. And I think, Intellectually, she was on the same level as them, but she had certain religious experiences which led her to become very close, though not entirely close, to Christianity. And the writings that I, I was interested in her about were her writings about Christianity and about the need for redemption, and also about the parallels 
that she finds between Christianity and the ancient Greek myths and stories. She, I think, also is interesting because her position is that God, in one sense, has withdrawn from the world because if the divine presence was too obvious in the world, then we will be crushed by it. Mm. And so we wouldn't be able to act in any way freely. On the other hand, and this is where I rather warm to her, she said that the world, of course, includes, as well as good things, beautiful things, it includes suffering, suffering to a huge degree. And so unless God was involved in the suffering of the world, as well as its beauty and its, its moral qualities and, and so on, the whole thing would be a kind of cosmic farce. So she says, and this is where she is more or less a Christian, she says that God, having on the face of it withdrawn from the world, God returns to the world not as a king, but as a beggar, and a beggar who suffers to the utmost, who is actually killed. So God actually, or the aspect of God actually suffers human despair and human death. And that's how I would see the incarnation. So I take from Simone Weil both the idea of the withdrawal of God on the face of the world, but then his re-entry to the world, but in this very humble and beggar-like state. Where I don't sympathize with her so much is I don't think she actually takes the incarnation seriously enough because I think that she, although she's actually very aware of beauty, I mean, she loved music, she loved Bach and Monteverdi and Gregorian chant, and she loved some the painters like Giotto and, and other ones. Um, I think she's too negative about incarnation. And so I'm not sure she even really believes in the resurrection. And she thinks that our ultimate destiny is to suffer affliction and to be, I think, almost destroyed, although that's probably a bit strong. But it seems to me that if God has both created the world and entered the world taking on human form, there must be something intrinsically valuable both about the world and about human form. So I'm not so negative as Simone is about human life and the things that we do with our material existence. Because to go to our notion of beauty, our notion of beauty is of course entirely tied up with physical things, things we can see, things we can touch, things we can hear. And we are only enabled to perceive beauty in this way because we are physical with bodies. And you know, if you want to talk about angels, I mean, I'm, I'm agnostic about angels, but let's suppose there were angels, these would be purely spiritual beings, and they would not be able to have the experiences of beauty that we have, because the experiences of beauty we have are entirely bound up with our physical endowments. So I would be more positive about 
human embodiment and human life than Simone Weil appears to me to be at times. So I also disagree with her quite a bit in the book later on. So the title is Transcendence, Creation and Incarnation. And you start by pointing out that purely physical scientific descriptions of things fall far short of understanding values. Yes. And so then, then you go to values and stories and myths and where you, I, I believe you end up is, is realizing that in order for all this to have meaning, we need an incarnation. Yes. So can you explain how you came to that conclusion and, and why it circles back to this original frustration of, well, a, you know, a purely physical description of the world isn't quite cutting it? Yeah, well, I mean, I think that here I have to um, owe a lot to Simone Weil. I mean, I, although I've just been critical of her, uh, um, but not just her, but I was particularly, when I was reading her, I was particularly impressed with the way that she emphasizes that the world would be, un you know, if, if we say that God is love, which is what I would want to say, or that the world is created out of love, then it wouldn't be loving if God weren't intimately involved in the suffering and despair that is also part of the world. So my notion of incarnation is very strongly centered on what it seems to me, in order for this story to make sense, that God has to be intimately involved in the bad sides or negative sides of existence, as well as the positive sides. And that leads me to Led Simon Weil, and it also is how I would emphasize the need for something like the incarnation. If we look at the Darwinian myth, yes, what does it tell us? It tells us, well, we survive and we reproduce and we adapt. Yes. We can survive and reproduce and yeah. there's pain and suffering, but that's just an inevitable consequence of it. And it doesn't really have any meaning. Yes. And there's a lot of people that say, yes, that's exactly right. And then we step mm -hmm. back and we go, well, this doesn't really tell us anything about how we should live. No. Look at the Christian creation myth and it says, it does tell you something about the, you know, well, you know, first you have light and, you know, and then you have plants and then you have animals and you have, it, it tells you some of that kind of information, but it's not really about those things. It's about man is made in the image of God. And then you, you get into the Adam and Eve story and we're fallen and we have these frustrations and we have this need for redemption. And then you have an incarnation. And so that gives you a whole picture of, well, well, humans yeah. should tell the truth. Humans should be purposeful. Humans are aspiring to imitate the best qualities of God. We have this frustration because we can't. It's actually much more meaningful. And then if we bring incarnation into it, then it says, well, God is involved in the suffering because God is love. Yes. 
That's a good way of putting it, yes. But I, I would also emphasize that the Darwinian picture is one which tells us that nature is pretty horrible. And Darwin himself was driven to despair at certain periods in his life by what he saw as the waste and prodigality of nature. It's true at the end of the origin of species, he talks about a grandeur in this picture, but one wonders what the grandeur is if you take his picture of just survival and reproduction as being the whole story, where this grandeur is and where it, where it yeah, I mean, what is so grand about this? <laughs> um, so I think that probably Darwin was conflicted himself. And I, I think that people who, who read or read The Origin of Species, um, I don't know whether people do read it itself much now, but people, um, they don't see the sheer bleakness of the picture clearly enough. They're kind of moved by Darwin's occasional rather poetic paeans to the grandeur, the, the way that it's... Well, this is another point. Um, according to Darwin, there's no progress from the earliest form of life to human beings, whatever you want to say. There's no progress. All you have is evolutionary adaptation, descent with modification, he calls it. But, of course, he does actually want to say that there's progress. And it's difficult not to see that, 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 that there is something perhaps even moving in a certain direction in evolution. Very difficult not to see that. But again, this is something that, that, that is really ruled out by the story that, that he tells. So I would want to say that even if you just look at biology and, and evolution, we find more things in it than are actually granted by the Darwinian story of survival and reproduction. I also, in the book, I'm quite sympathetic to at least a, a version of the anthropic principle. The anthropic principle says, I mean, this is tautologically true, that given that we exist, you know, we, you and me, Perry and everybody else, you know, we're self-conscious beings, we're conscious, we're self-conscious, we can think, we have values, we understand what truth is, we have freedom, all these aspects of our lives. Now, the tautological truth is that if there was such a thing as the Big Bang, then at the Big Bang, there must have been, in some sense, the potentiality for these things that, take, that seem to take us very far beyond what we're told about by cosmology. And again, I'm not saying cosmology is wrong, but I'm saying that the cosmology may leave out the potentialities that end up with us on Earth with these capacities which are way beyond anything which we find out about in physics. Even if you just take life, um, it's very difficult to explain life in terms purely of physics. There does seem to be a jump from physics to biology. Mm -hmm. um, of course, this doesn't mean to say that, that, that the story of the world developing through inorganic matter to organic matter isn't true, but it suggests that there must be perhaps more to inorganic matter than physics would allow. So, and to go on further into consciousness and so on. So 
I have some sympathy with the anthropic principle if you take it to say that, well, you don't have a lot of sympathy with it, that in the origins of the universe, or even if you don't think the universe had an origin, at the lowest level of creation, there must be the potentiality for these higher levels. And again, I think this course doesn't, in any sense, prove anything divine, but it makes us perhaps more open to looking at the world in a way that isn't trying to reduce everything to physics that for a long time has been the big aim of science, really since Newton, to see everything purely in terms of inorganic matter. So how do you feel that you live your life or have a different outlook because you have an incarnation view yeah. of the world? How does it inform that? Well, it does inform my life. I think this picture is believable believable does one believe it now i think that partly because i see human beings as fallen which you can interpret metaphorically if you like it seems to me that we need help and i think i believe strongly in the need for grace. But of course, this is now becoming rather theological. So it seems to me that to lead a full religious life, there must be something like grace that helps people to get from, if you like, believability to belief in the full sense. So I would want to bring in some notion of grace, well, that's obviously the Christian term, but maybe in other, other traditions one can find something similar, that, that we need some impulse from the divine itself in order to spark a truly religious life in us. And of course, Simon Weil thought that because it was as a result of some profound religious experiences that she had that turned her in the direction that she eventually took. So I would also want to say that the religious life involves not just knowing or thinking about these things in a kind of, well, intellectual, I say, but maybe more than intellectual in an aesthetic way. We also have to rely on something like grace to move us from the understanding to the practice. Yeah, grace is a, by definition, it's a gift, a, a yeah. gift of some level of experience or some, some kind of knowledge that moves you from believable to believing. Yes, yes. And, and uh, yeah, I argue that in the last chapter of the book. Yes, yes. Because, uh, and I think that, um, I mean, I'm really talking from my own experience now. I mean, I think that sometimes... Well, I mean, like, like many people have, have said, I mean, not, of course, I'm, there's nothing original about this, but, but one should live in a way that keeps you open to grace, to these sparks which fire the religious life. So you can open yourself to it, but you can't actually, you have to accept it. It's something that comes from without. If it came from within, it would probably be 
false. Well, I'd like to just commend you for your book, Transcendence, Creation, and Incarnation by Anthony O'Hare, published by Rutledge. And um, it's been great talking to you today. And uh, I, I also want to commend you for tackling some subjects that I think a lot of philosophers turn up their nose at, but you have you have decided to take very seriously as well you should. I, I like the approach that you took. Thank you. Well, thank you very much for the conversation, Perry, and for inviting me onto your podcast. I'm very grateful. Until next time, this is the Evolution 2.0 podcast, bridging science, technology, business, and the big questions. To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe on iTunes or on your preferred player. If you like the show, rate us on iTunes. Join our email list and social media at CosmicFingerprints.com. Evolution 2.0